Namaste and welcome. This is Jainil Dalal and you are listening to the Design MBA. This podcast is a real-life MBA program for designers where we interview design hustlers and learn the skills, mindset necessary for a designer to launch a business venture. You can learn more, find past episodes and stay updated at designmba.show. Why are you listening to this podcast? Think about it. Deep down, you want to grow in your design career. And I've been in your shoes. I've pushed pixels for years without really knowing how the hell do I grow in my design career. So I've created a free email course for you to help you level up your design career. The strategies I share in this 7-day email course are actionable and used by over 700 plus designers with success. So head over to levelup.designmba.show or you can find the link to this email course in the show notes. Level up your design career today. Today's amazing guest is Luke Thomas. Luke is founder of Friday, which is an asynchronous update platform that helps distributor teams stay connected. Previously, Luke was head of product at Crystal and has been working remotely since 2013. Outside of work, Luke enjoys hanging out with his family and he lives in Portland, Maine. If you ever visit, he will gladly show you around town. If your team is remote and you are looking to increase the productivity of your remote team, then definitely go to friday.app and check it out. By automating your daily stand-ups to telling the team what you're working on, you never have to hear, hey, what are you working on? Give me an update. Where's the daily status update? All of that shit is automatically automated. So head over to friday.app and check it out. Luke, thank you so much for joining on the show, man. Super excited to have you here. Yeah, I'm excited to, to jump on and chat. You know, the most amazing thing is ever since I read about your articles at LukeThomas.com about you taking cold showers, I actually tried it for the first time in my life. Like <laughs> well, out of volition, not out of force. <laughs> yeah. Forced to do it. <laughs> That's funny. Yeah. Uh, I guess a little bit of context. So myself and some other guys, we started this kind of little breakfast group and we had a variety of tasks or a variety of things that we would do for a span of about three months. And one of them was the whole idea was that you practice some type of like delayed gratification, or you would consciously think about these things that came and happened on autopilot. And so one of the activities was taking a cold shower every morning. And I'll be the first to admit that I got sick a couple weeks ago, so I need to jump back into the routine. But for almost two months, I would just take a cold shower. And just outlined quickly in the blog post that uh, that you read, these surprising benefits of doing something that sounds painful and not very much fun. And so I guess I'll do the quick summary. The long story short is most of our day is spent doing things that just come on autopilot. And by practicing some type of delayed gratification or by intentionally telling yourself, no, I'm not going to do this thing, there are a variety of like very interesting benefits. So for me, I was way more awake. It almost was like drinking a lot of coffee. The second was that, gosh, I'm trying to remember all the different benefits. I mean, the, that was the most obvious thing. Second thing was that it really laid an interesting foundation for like, saying no to things in other parts of my life as well. And so, yeah, long story short, this is something that 
I heard about a long time ago, I remember hearing Ben Franklin would take like cold baths <laughs> and I thought it was stupid, but mm. I tried it for myself and it was surprisingly actually a net positive uh, to my day, even though it was very, very cold up here in Maine. The water is not very warm when it is, you know, 10 degrees outside or so. Yeah, I found myself that the first couple of times I tried it, that if, if I just went it all the way the knob down to cold mm -hmm. it was just like <laughs> really hard but then i would start a little bit like lukewarm and then slowly and slowly and slowly tone it down and it's like i also do this uh cryotherapy from time to time yep so it, it almost felt similar because there you're stuck in a chamber for a little bit and then here you're just taking the shower and, and i definitely felt awake man one, one <laughs> yeah it'll definitely wake you up in the morning for sure <laughs> And on that note about delayed gratification, something else that I find uh, useful in my personal life, and I think you already do this, is I also do intermittent fasting mm -hmm. every Monday. So like today I'll start. And one of the hacks that I do is, it's hard to kind of do it for 24 hours. I usually do it on like for me Monday evenings. Like I'll start at about like 9 p.m. Mm -hmm. um, or sometimes earlier on 6 p.m. And then it will go to Tuesday 6 p.m. And then usually you're at work in the morning. So you kind of just like forget about it. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's another area where I was surprised at the benefits. My mom started doing it probably, gosh, probably like six months ago or so. And yeah, I mean, she lost a bunch of weight and felt great and would uh, say a bunch of really good things about it. And I was just like, this is ridiculous. Like, I love my breakfast. Like, why would I give that up? And gosh, probably around November, it was right around the time I jumped into Friday full time, call it late October or so. I started doing it and I would just, uh, yeah, essentially skip breakfast. So I would start eating at noon and then I'd be done typically like five, five thirty. And at first it was a little difficult, but now it's like, I mean, I, I had lunch a little early today because I had to jump on a call. Yeah. I mean, I think I've lost like 20 pounds or something and I feel really great. And so it's like, okay, Congrats, I, think, I think I'm actually going to keep doing this. Uh, so yeah, uh, that's another area where it is it is surprising how effective it's been. And it boils down to this premise of like, okay, if you want average results, you should do what everybody else is doing. But if you want, you know, atypical results, you have to do something that does not come naturally for you, right? I think that's kind of my big learning with cold showers, with intermittent fasting and with other parts of, of your life as well. And then you spoke about jumping full-time to Friday. So how would you describe Friday in your own words? Yeah, I'm still working on best explaining this, but the long story short is Friday makes it really easy to share regular updates about what you're working on. And so right now, and you know, at pretty much every company I've ever worked at, you know, you have these kind of communication routines that are set up. Some of those are at the team level. Some of those exist at the company level. But the idea is that, you know, you need to create some type of process to the way that you communicate and share information. And so what, you know, teams will do is they might do something like a weekly staff meeting. If you're an executive, you might do like an all hands or maybe like a monthly email to the entire company. But the idea is that if you want a predictable result, you need to create a predictable kind of way to communicate. and. The reality is, is that that's actually way more difficult than it needs to be. So at some previous companies, we would 
you know, be responsible for sharing an update of what we did over the course of the week. And we would use that to, to kind of serve as a bedrock or a foundation for our Monday morning meetings. And typically the process would go something like this. Friday rolls around and some of us would have, you know, Google Calendar reminders to fill out, you know, a document. Some of us wouldn't. So Monday morning rolls around. Some people have filled out their updates. Other people haven't. And then the boss or the manager needs to manually ask those people, hey, like, can you fill out your update? Like, our meeting starts soon. Like, fill out this doc. <laughs> That's usually me. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like, Janiel, where's your updates? Yeah, exactly. So, like, this happens all the time. And I would just get distracted. It wasn't me, like, necessarily being a bad employee. I just had a lot going on. And I guess I didn't prioritize it. So, anyway, sometimes we'd show up to the meeting. And, and then the meeting kicks off. And half the people haven't read it. And so you end up just reading what you wrote in the document, if you wrote it in the document. Yes. <laughs> and, then, and then you're like, wow, this is a massive waste of time. Like, this is a terrible meeting. Halfway through the meeting, sometimes more than halfway through, the updates are out of the way. And then people finally jump into the best part of the meeting, which is kind of collaborating or like talking about stuff that needs to be discussed in a real-time format. And so, yeah, what we've done at Friday is we've really tried to automate as much of that process as possible. So if you were to create an account on Friday, you could, you know, invite your team and set up kind of a communication workflow is what we call them. And so we'll handle the notifications that could be over email, Slack or Microsoft Teams. We have a structured set of questions that you can answer or you can add your own, right? Like, hey, what are you working on this week? What are your priorities? What did you accomplish last week? It's really up to you about how you want to do that. And then if you don't fill it out, we'll send you a reminder over email or through a bot. And after you filled out the update, we'll push it to the right people for visibility. And so what we've essentially done is just broken down the barriers to sharing regular updates at work. And this is something that's incredibly important with distributed teams in particular, because they are in many ways missing stuff that people in the office passively can learn through observation primarily, right? You can run into someone in the hallway before and after a meeting occurs. You can kind of shoot the breeze with your coworkers and you learn a lot through those experiences. But when you're remote, it's very difficult to understand what's going on. And so we think the best way to really improve productivity and kind of overall happiness at work and to make remote work a lot better is by making it easy for teams and companies to create systems to the way that they communicate and share information. There's plenty of tools on the market that make it easy to have a video call or they make it easy to chat back and forth with coworkers. We see Friday as a complementary tool to those that provides just this high level insight into what's going on at work. I realized that was a bit of a rant, but that's really what Friday is and how it works. And that makes sense. And Friday lives on top of the existing communication channels. Like if somebody's using Slack, they can just use it on top of that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So for example, internally at Friday, we use Slack, we use Trello, and we use Friday. And we hear this over and over again from some of our customers. But in many ways, it's kind of you have a project management tool, you have kind of this collaboration tool for the quick back and forth or that ad hoc communication. And then Friday provides the high level view into what's going on. And so that's what we've seen over and over again. And I mean, I certainly couldn't run a company without a tool like Friday because, I mean, we only have one meeting a week. 
And that's only possible because information is flowing on a regular basis to the right people. So what was your first experience with remote work that led you to think about like, maybe this is something I'm excited with? Yeah, it's a really good question. So what got me into the idea of remote work was, so I grew up and lived in Maine most of my life. And so I graduated college and moved to Boston with my wife. And I mean, the long story short is we knew we wouldn't be there forever. But the idea and the rationale for moving to Boston was, you know, there wasn't a lot of tech jobs where I was. I wanted to work in tech and I really wanted to kind of, you know, learn and grow. And then ideally, at some point in the future, wouldn't it be nice to move back to Maine or some other place and, you know, live out in the middle of nowhere or wherever you wanted and to still work on what I would call interesting things, right? When you're in a more rural area, oftentimes you don't have as many opportunities. And so what I was trying to do was kind of hack the system, so to speak, so that I could still work on interesting things or work at interesting tech companies and live in an area that was a bit cheaper and where, you know, I could have some land and like go outside Absolutely. and play, right? <laughs> That's why I'm still in Dallas. I yeah, love it here. A, so my first experience working remotely was, I mean, for a while, even before uh, this experience, I did kind of contracting, right? Which frequently was outside of the office. And so I would, I would contract on the side throughout college and all that. So I was familiar with, you know, doing work outside of the office. Uh, but my first experience, this was my second job out of school. And I worked for a small startup based in the Valley, Palo Alto specifically. And I was working in Boston. And part of the team was in California. And another part was overseas in like the UK and the Netherlands. So that was my first experience working remotely. And at the time, you know, Slack wasn't around. We were using HipChat. We were using this tool called Squiggle, which was like this virtual office of sorts and, you know, Google Docs and Asana. Wow. You know, something amazing is I've started doing more remote work or given the, the epidemic we are in these days, we are forced to embrace remote work, whether we like it or not. Mm -hmm. And, you know, as I think about comparing this to like just real life work day to day, we just see everybody. I feel like my productivity has really gone up with remote mm -hmm. work. Yeah, so it, it certainly, there's a lot of variance, right? So for example, and this was largely true, I mean, these days, pretty much everyone is working remotely, um, out of necessity, as you mentioned. But let's say, like, you know, rewind a couple months, you know, you would see teams, certain teams would work remotely while other teams would be in the office. That's a different dynamic than if everyone is fully distributed. Like, there's a lot of variance here. Some of it is based on the role, right? Some of the work that you do may be more obvious and more quantifiable in nature than others. If you work in sales, for example, I mean, the idea of a remote salesperson has been around for a while. And tools like Salesforce really give you that insight into like someone's productivity and output. Engineering is now largely remote because of tools like GitHub, where you can, you know, the code that you write is kind of written in stone. And yeah, so it, the remote work experience, you know, there's a lot of variables at play that can, you know, make things a lot better or worse. I would argue that based on my experience in working remotely for almost seven years for a few different companies in a few different kind of roles, whether it's individual contributor, manager, kind of more executive role, there's kind of two 
Uh, there's a really great essay that I would recommend. If you haven't read it, you should check it out. It's called Maker versus Manager. Um, and it was written by Paul Graham. And the idea is that there's kind of, I'll try yes. to summarize it, but there's essentially two modes of work. There's people that are actually producing and delivering some like tangible output, right? And there are people on the maker's schedule. And so they need a lot of time. Small distractions are very harmful, right? I remember when I worked on an engineering team, this was my first job out of school. If someone would like tap you on the shoulder and ask you a question and you were in the zone, it could throw you off for an hour. And so you having that time to really get into kind of that flow state um, is super important for certain types of work. Then you have people who are kind of the team leaders or executives where their responsibility and their output is the output of their team, right? So as a leader of a team, I am essentially judged on how my, like the output that my team is doing. So what happens is as a team leader, there's almost like this conflict that happens. Team leader, you need to know what's going on. You need to be able to steer the ship, so to speak. And in order to do that, you need to gather data about what people are doing, where they might be stuck, and other key things. But if you're an individual contributor, those things can just suck the life out of you. And yes. so I'm getting into a, another tangent, but what I've noticed is that the key to making remote work work <laughs> is really like essentially giving people on the manager's schedule where you need to understand what's going on and you need to steer the ship. How do you give them the most important insights in a way that minimizes the number of meetings, minimizes the amount of like back and forth chatter? How do you do that, right? And I think personally, the way you do that is through these kind of communication habits. And so, yeah, the I personally love being remote because I can wake up and some mornings I'll start working, you know, at 5 a.m. in the morning and other days I can't do that. But some mornings I'm up early and then it makes it easy to take a break, hang out with my son, you know, have do all of that before he goes off to daycare. And, you know, I'm done my work day typically a little bit before four. And that's so I can pick him up at daycare and, and then hang out with him and not feel bad because I've already, I've got the work done, but my schedule is different than a coworker, right? And so what, what matters a lot to me and what makes remote work really, really great is balancing the need for kind of the real-time collaboration with giving people the freedom to really have time to do really meaningful and intrinsically interesting work. And you already touched on this. And also, I was, I'm currently reading this uh, by Jason Fried, the book, It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work. Mm -hmm. And both you, you guys are touching the same topic, which is not everything has to be real time. Mm -hmm. Like the updates, it can be not at the same time or asynchronous. And I remember in some work environments, working where what I told the boss, like, we don't have a meeting till noon. Can I just finish some other things that I have in the day, my appointments with doctors and like that, or just some other things I have on my plate mm -hmm. and then come in later and I'll stay in later. And then the boss was like, no, I need you in, at this desk at eight thirty, even if there's nothing to do. Mm -hmm. And, <laughs> and in my head, I'm part of me is just like, is it, this just doesn't make sense in my head. Mm -hmm. Like why I have to follow this rule. And then, you know, you touched upon this meetings where everybody's got to give the status update and I think the best reward an employee can get is having 
some kind of structure or ownership over their structure in their day to day. We're like, okay, well, I want to work out in the morning, but then I can start my day later at 10. And if there's, mm-hmm. like you said, a, a strict meeting where all the entire hands-on team at noon, then that's fine. Then, then I'll just make time around it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I've spent like probably way too much time researching kind of like why, you know, like why, like what makes a, a meeting great? What kind of necessitates real-time collaboration and what can be done how many of the meetings should have been emails, right? So it's like, how do you balance both forms of communication, right? So there's the need for the real time, and then you can do things asynchronously or, you know, in a delayed way. And based on my research, here's kind of how I think about it. And I'll I'll try to like explain it as best as I can. I'm still kicking around the concepts in my head, but yeah, let's, (laughs) this is, this is a fun topic. So the way I think about it is that there's kind of two pieces of criteria that you should really think about when it comes to the need for a real-time meeting or real-time conversation. And the two variables to think about, one is the potential Mm -hmm. for misunderstanding high, and is there a lot of ambiguity in what we are discussing? If those are true, you should gravitate towards using the richest communication channel possible. And in many scenarios, you know, that's in person. But the next step up is like a Zoom call or a video call. Yep. And then you work your way up from there. But here's the basic gist is that you essentially need more data points. If those two factors are true, you need more data points to be able to establish common ground between you and the other person or the group of people talking. And so what can be very useful and where real-time meetings and real-time conversations are extremely useful is you can read body language. You can kind of capture their tone. You have all this data flowing at you that allows you to better interpret the message of the person you know, speaking. And if you don't have, like if you aren't on the same playing field, you can quickly hash things out, right? The feedback loop is very fast because you can say, well, I I don't really get what you're saying. Can you explain that more? And that fast iteration is what a a meeting is best for, I would argue, right? So those are kind of the superpowers of real-time collaboration is fast feedback loop, tons of data points to help you establish common ground. On the flip side, let's say you are communicating and you are sharing facts or basic bits of information, right? That is very kind of cut and dry. It's very obvious, like there's not a huge misunderstanding or the potential to be misunderstood. And like ambiguity isn't very high, right? Hey, I'm working on this thing today and I'm going to be out at two because I wanna go to the gym, right? Like that's a message that, the probability that it will be misinterpreted is pretty low. Um, Yep. And so that is an example where asynchronous communication, I would argue, is ideal, right? Because what you can do is you can, instead of holding a real-time meeting and going around in a circle saying, what are you working on? What are you working on? What are you working on? Which is just a ridiculous waste of time. You can share that information asynchronously. People can process it at the time that makes sense for them. And then if you have questions or if you need to establish that common ground, we'll then jump on a call. Right. So in the example of running a daily standup, which is popular in engineering circles, it's kind of typically three questions. What did you do yesterday? What are you working on today? And do you have any blockers? 
The first two questions are pretty obvious, generally speaking. The third one is one of those scenarios where figuring out if someone's blocked oftentimes necessitates some type of real-time conversation. And so anyway, that's how I think about the balancing act between real-time and delayed, because each, I think of it like a yin-yang relationship, each has benefits, each has drawbacks. And if you use them in tandem at the appropriate time, you can create this very, very interesting kind of combination. So if you're in a remote first world, or if there's a company that's completely distributed, and the richest form of communication they would have, as you alluded to, is probably getting on a Zoom call. So in that case, how does one go about judging those body languages? I mean, I know I can see you and stuff, but compare that to real life, how would you go about doing that? Well, I mean, I would, the way I talk about it is a Zoom call versus real life is kind of like 1080p versus, you know, call it 720p, right? It's like HD video versus a fuzzy, more fuzzy video. And I mean, the reality is, is that there is no replacement for an in-person kind of back and forth. You just learn so much. Zoom, it gets pretty close, but it's not fully there. And so what a lot of remote and distributed teams will do is they kind of understand this, right? They understand that you learn a lot just hanging out with people (laughs) Um, and being in person. So what many of them will do is they'll do some type of uh, company onsite typically once or twice a year. And what that does is it provides, ideally, you know, you could do it a little bit more frequently, but that provides a way to get to know people and to have those like really kind of tricky conversations. Like for example, if I'm going to talk about annual strategy, for example, I would argue that you should probably think about maybe doing that at your company onsite. And so the reality is, is like remote work is a trade-off right? It will not solve all your problems. But the reality is, is like a lot of the work you do on a, on an everyday basis, like you don't need to have the richest feedback loop possible all the time. You just need to be able to like pull that lever when you need to. And so that's kind of how I think about things like Zoom in many ways is like, it's the next best thing to being in person. Um, but it will not replace those in-person conversations, I don't think. And that's what I miss is even though I love remote work, I'm an extrovert person. So for me, that people-to-people interaction is really important. So oh, if absolutely. I'm working, so if I'm working remotely right now, like I'm literally, like I don't need to buy anything right now, but I'm just literally standing in line at a, at a grocery store because mm-hmm. that's the only thing I can do. Um, we have a stay-at-home shelter right now in Dallas. so. But it's just that seeing some people around me, it just makes me feel sane. Yeah, absolutely. I'm super extroverted too. Um, and so there's a few things that I personally do to try to help this, some of which you can't really do right now because everyone needs to stay at home. But I'll kind of share like what you can do now and then maybe what you could oh, yeah. do if you were to work remotely post-coronavirus outbreak, right? <laughs> so what you could do now, and one thing I have found really, really helpful is what I call a coffee shop co-working session. <laughs> and so the idea came about when I flew down to Nashville. We have a couple full-time uh, employees at Friday who work down there. So I just decided to fly down and hang out with them in person. And a couple days, we would meet up at a coffee shop and it was, you know, we would huddle around a table and we'd get work done. But 
it also was kind of obvious that, you know, it wasn't only about just getting work done. It was about kind of hanging out, being around each other, quick, being able to kind of quickly pick up your head and say, hey, like quick question or, hey, let's talk about X, Y, and Z. And so after that experience, I kind of went home and was like, how could we replicate that in-person experience where we were just shooting the breeze it wasn't about the work necessarily, but work was kind of getting done as well. And I just came to the conclusion, okay, well, why don't we just try to replicate this? And so what we do is once every two weeks, I would maybe think about doing it more frequently. Maybe, you know, if you really need people interaction during this time, maybe do it twice a week, maybe do it on a Friday, or maybe do it, you know, in the middle of the week, but essentially allocate, call it an hour, where you all jump on a Zoom call or a video call. And the point of the call is not to necessarily talk about work or to do status updates, but instead you get on and you treat it essentially like the experience we had all huddled around a table at a coffee shop, right? Ah, like the water cooler conversation yes. or something like that. Yes, exactly. And so we've been doing this for a couple months and it's been a really, really cool experience. So. We have people all over the world that, you know, help us out and build Friday. And, you know, clearly people are in different time zones, so you can't do this all the time. It would just be crazy. But to allocate an hour every couple of weeks, jump on a call and just talk about things. Sometimes it devolves into, you know, work-related conversations. Typically, I kick things off by just quickly saying, hey, like, here's, like, here's a few cool things that I've noticed from customers or... Like, here's what our investors are saying or something else, right? I just kind of seed the conversation a little bit. But typically, you know, we talk about, oh, how's your family doing? Or like, you know, how are you holding up during this coronavirus? Like, it goes all over the place. Sometimes it's like we do kind of this show and tell where an engineer that's working on a feature will show that off. But the idea is that this meeting is not about work. It's essentially the opposite. It's about hanging out as people and then if we do a little bit of work at the same time, that's fine. And I would say that from my perspective, this has had a huge impact on how connected I feel to the rest of the team. And so I would strongly recommend thinking about that because, yeah, I just think flipping the meeting format on its head, right, before it's work plus a little bit of personal like conversation, instead flip it. So it's personal conversation with a little bit of work. So as the leader in charge of this meeting, do you find yourself monitoring that if the conversation is getting too technical, too much work related, that you have to like dial it back down? No. I mean, part of this is because the group of people isn't huge, right? But I've heard of other companies that do a similar thing, even with larger groups. And, you know, I would certainly advocate that you should probably, like if you're part of a bigger company, like do this at a team level, Right. But the reality is, is if you're trying to replicate hanging out in a coffee shop, like that's pretty freeform. You shouldn't feel the need to curtail conversation because that wouldn't really necessarily like happen in real life, right? <laughs> At least like most places I've worked where you're in person, it's like if the boss is like, hey, can we like talk about something else? It'd be like, uh, I think I should go work somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know? God. So anyway, that's the best way I've found to stay connected and to feel connected when you work remotely. Do those coffee shop co-working sessions. And, you know, an hour every week or so, try it out, 
see how it works. I think you'll be surprised. It sounds kind of cheesy, but it works very, very well. The second thing that I do as a remote employee when I am allowed to leave the house and go places, I book time to meet up with people in the local community. So I try to have like, call it two to three meetings a week where I am like meeting up with someone at a coffee shop where I am able to, you know, talk with someone and, you know, do the extroverted people stuff, right? And what that does is it gives me energy. And then I go home and I just like, am able to accomplish a lot of work because I'm like pouring water into that extroverted bucket, for lack of better words. And yeah, so that's how I personally deal with it as an extrovert is it's like, the source of social interaction will not happen inside of your house or your apartment. Yes. So just like get outside of the house. Like your house is not your home. Uh, <laughs> that's that's <laughs> how I think about it. And so I have to be intentional about getting out of the house. And once again, I think if you spend all of your day in meetings, taking those coffee shop breaks to meet up with someone in your community is much, much more difficult. So you have to reduce your dependency on meetings to be able to do stuff like that. And so those are the two things that I found. I mean, there's a lot of people that work remotely, probably in your neighborhood, to be honest. And I've been able to randomly meet a bunch of people in the city that I live. And so like we're all in the same boat. We had a meetup uh, early January before all the coronavirus happened. It was like 80 people showed up to a, a, like a meetup type event and they wow. all worked remotely. And it was like super cool. And so like there's people around you. It's just a little difficult to find them. Yes. And especially in Portland where you're based, uh, one of my former bosses used to, uh, I, I believe he's still there. And oh, cool. I remember one time I visited Portland, we actually biked down. Um, I think it was the the dockyard or something. It was just beautiful. Oh, yeah. It's a great city. Like it's biking such there. a Oh, my city. God. So you were bootstrapping Friday for quite a while, doing a full-time job. And... Mm -hmm using that capital to fund Friday. So how did you even manage all this workload? Because you got the full-time responsibilities and then, you know, you're running a startup full throttle. Like, how did you go about doing that? It was pretty brutal, to be honest. So I'll, I'll kind of try to tell that story a little bit. So I've worked in early stage tech for most of my career. And the thing that I always found a little bit annoying was when you like, there's a lot of startups that are founded based on, on, on an idea, right? Because if you're an investor frequently, like you, you just don't have that much data to go off. And so you make a bet on the team. And what that looks like in practice is you have a team of people working around kind of the central thesis to why the company should exist. And they'll start hiring people oftentimes from like day zero or day one. Yes. And here's what happens. You start building out the product and that thesis is tested. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Or I would say most of the time it doesn't. So what happens is you have this kind of struggle to find the product, like product market fit, which I would just call like a repeatable behavior that people use your tool to do. And what happens is if you're an early stage employee, there's a lot of what I call thrashing that happens. So you're on the hunt for product market fit. You're constantly pivoting the product. You're constantly like one day you need someone in this role. The next day you change strategy and you let them go. It, there's just so much thrashing that happens. And I personally experienced that at, at companies. And I thought, this seems kind of like I get, like I get why they do it. 
But wouldn't it be nice if I could like build a product or build a, a software product and do it in a way where I was able to test those assumptions and find that repeatable behavior or find some semblance of product market fit before I started bringing on a bunch of like full-time people. <laughs> because if you can limit the thrashing, you can be way more capital efficient. You can hire people and be and like play a long-term game of sorts where like you bring on people and you don't have to let them go three months because your strategy completely changes. Because the fundamentals of the business are kind of consistent. Or at least they're more consistent than they would be if you were to just hire them without building anything. So I started off building Friday on nights and weekends, kind of based around that premise. I was just like trying to scratch my own itch. Some of my first jobs out of school, I had a bunch of different managers and the best managers would have regular one-on-ones. The managers that weren't so great, like there was no dedicated time where I could say, hey, like things aren't going so well. <laughs> and so I thought at the time, this was a while ago, thought at the time, wouldn't it, like, why isn't there a tool to just like ask questions on a regular basis for employees and then push those insights to managers? So that's how I originally started Friday. It was based around the concept of improving the employee to manager relationship. And I worked on that for a while. And like, I mean, the product continually grew. Like it wasn't necessarily like any, like it was just more out of chance than anything, I think. <laughs> and we ended up selling, you know, one team would start using it. And then all of a sudden a larger group would start using it. And it kind of grew organically. It was relatively slow, but fortunately I wasn't in a huge rush because I was working on it nights and weekends. And so, yeah, I mean, I ended up growing it. I think it was around this time last year was doing somewhere in the neighborhood of like uh, last December or so it was doing about 60 or 70 K a year in wow. revenue. And I was still working on it nights and weekends. And fortunately for me, the product wasn't super complex. So like I didn't have a lot of people that would email and reach out about like support re related requests. I kind of knew that like, if I'm going to make this work nights and weekends, like the product can't be super complex and difficult exactly. to use. <laughs> but I mean, with that being said, I would still like answer emails and like before work and at lunchtime and, you know, at the end of the day and on weekends and stuff like that, you know, just try to find times to be able to work on it. And yeah, I mean, right around this time last year, I mean, the product kept growing. We closed a pretty big customer. <laughs> like, I kind of feel bad saying this, but like we closed a $35,000 a year deal uh, with it still being a side project. <laughs> Damn. And uh, that was when I started to go, okay, I really need to think about doing this full time. At the time I had my first son, we moved into this uh, new place and I was renovating it while having a full time job. It was like really rough. And it's the craziest how you would convince your wife to let you do this. Because <laughs> assuming you had some conversation that, hey, I'm going to try this out. If maybe there's a time limit, like two, three years, it doesn't work, then you get a job. How did that conversation go? Yeah, it was really kind of funny. I mean, as it kind of grew slowly over time, I mean, there was a lot of give and take uh, that I had to do. So, I mean, there was times and I would not recommend, like, sometimes you just don't know what you're getting into, <laughs> which... That's kind of the bucket that I fell into. I, I mean, there would be times where I know you're in Texas, but there was one time that our website went down and I was on the road and I was doing like support and trying to reboot servers from a parking lot at Bucky's. Oh my God. 
(laughs) (laughs) And so it was, I would not recommend that. So anyway, long story short, I mean, it was fortunately, like I started the, the company and I started Friday when it was just my wife and I, before we had kids and all that. And so it was a little bit easier to manage, but when a kid arrives, it totally changes the game. And that's really, that was also kind of a forcing function for being like, I need to like figure out if this is a business or not, because I can't keep doing like this, like it was just constant, like something I needed to do. And yeah, it was not easy. (laughs) So like working on Friday full-time as a founder, it's like, sure, it's stressful, (laughs) but it's, it's not as stressful as, as that time. It's juggling the two jobs. Same Two time. jobs, renovating a house and a newborn colic kid <laughs> that cried all the time. Oh, my God. Yeah, it was pretty rough. So uh, I would not recommend that, first of all. I mentioned it in the post that I wrote, but it's like, make sure that if you're in a relationship, like you really need to like talk about that. And if I was going to do things again, I would time box the entire thing. So I'd say, if it is not doing X you know, between now and, you know, this date in the future, like I will do this other thing. And we we did some of that. So for example, my wife was like, hey, like, I don't think you should go full time on this unless you can pay yourself X amount. And it was like, okay, I really like need to take that into consideration. And so that was like, there was certainly some guardrails that we set, but I would probably be a little bit more thoughtful, I guess, around what guardrails you set if you try to do something like this. Yeah, just, I kicked the can a bit too much. Like, I worked on this on nights and weekends a bit longer than I probably should have. I mean, looking back, it kind of worked out. But, I mean, make no mistake, like, there's a sacrifice involved. And, like, you have to be very thoughtful about what that actually looks like and who it also impacts. And then the thing with the time boxing and guardrails you mentioned, I feel sometimes I'm just optimistically delusional to some mm-hmm. degree. And I feel like having those things in place, my mind is like, what if I set a time box of like, I'm going to give it, you know, three months or three years, for example, mm-hmm. whatever that number is. What if I just needed to give one more month? Maybe it was supposed to be three months and uh, maybe there was supposed to be two more weeks to it. And then the product could have kicked off. Mm-hmm. So that's always that dilemma in that head. How do you how do you resolve that? No, you know what? I said, you know, three months as a time frame. If I don't hit this revenue or this metric, then I need to stop. Yeah, I mean, from my perspective, the it's a really interesting question. I think from my perspective, the only way to like short circuit that process is by being incredibly intentional about what you work on. And so for me, I fell into this trap of, oh, I should add another feature. Oh, I should add another feature. Like we need to add this and then the product will be ready or, you know, and so what happened is you kind of, this is a a common trap with entrepreneurs is that, is that there's kind of like this core product hook of sorts. It's like this repeatable behavior that people use your tool to do. And oftentimes that can be validated or invalidated very quickly. So for me, the idea of a notification that triggers an update that is then sent to stakeholders and to do that over and over again, like that's technically something you could set up with like Zapier, Google Forms and Google Drive or or spreadsheets or something, right? Like you could glue together tools to do that. And for us, that's kind of that product hook. And so like if you want to 
kind of short circuit the process where where you get in a place where it's like, oh, if I only had invested another month, then the product may have been successful. It's like, eh, probably not. Instead, you should focus all your time and energy on like measuring and validating essentially human behavior around your product. Because if you can build some type of repeatable behavior that people like use your tool to do, like that's a big deal. And you should double down on that specifically before you keep adding features or keep optimizing something that may or may not work. And so like if I were to start another company again, I would focus all my energy on finding some repeatable behavior that people use your product to do. You don't have to hire a bunch of engineers to do that. You can probably validate it like cobbling together different tools and, you know, and kind of low code like solutions. And then that gives you kind of the motivation and the evidence you need to be able to sink more time in. But even then you could keep things really simple. That's what I would recommend. But at the end of the day, it's like a business typically has some type of trajectory. And if it's like a very slow growth, you know that. If it's very like exponential growth, you know that as well. And so if you were to extend things by just another month, you probably won't move the needle that much on the existing trend that exists. That makes perfect sense. And it's my understanding that you live a very frugal life. And I think you also mentioned this in one of your articles that you knew that you were going to go on this journey of entrepreneurship. So you started changing your lifestyle and focusing more on saving. So can you talk a little bit more about that? Like how does one prepare for that? Yeah. So I think that's kind of a big deal. At least that's my personal take is that building a business is tough. It seems like building a business while struggling and like trying to make things work for yourself financially or for your family only adds more stress and increases the probability of something bad happening, <laughs> right? And so I knew that I wanted to start a company. And yeah, I mean, we just kind of saved and, you know, didn't take as many trips as we wanted or, and we really have been very fortunate. But for us, what that means tactically is like, you don't need to buy a new car, for example. We like do not drive new vehicles. We have purchased used vehicles. Another thing is like for us where we live, like we've been fortunate to be able to buy a home and like we could have probably afforded a more expensive home, but like we didn't really need it. And so like if you're able to slow the growth of lifestyle inflation, that can have a huge impact. In many ways, I feel like we still live similarly to how we lived like our first year out of college like not much has changed wow um i mean <laughs> we live in a house versus a tiny apartment in boston but like yeah and it's, it's hard to do it's really yeah, hard to do not to I mean, get involved in the whole keep up with the jonas's game yeah i mean i i don't know how this happened but i was talking with my wife about this last night and we both i asked her like what's your superpower and for her it's like she when she sets her mind to something she does like she will just be like a machine until that's done. And for me, I feel like my superpower is just not really caring what people think. And I think part of that is because like I grew up in a family that like didn't have a lot. I was one of like four kids. My dad was the only one who worked. So we, like we were always kind of scraping by and like we were certainly more fortunate than other people. Like I grew up in this small town in Maine and like half the town was on some form of like welfare or like federal assistance. And we weren't, but like, we didn't drive nice vehicles. We like, there were times where my parents were very nervous about, you know, finances, like they clipped coupons, they did all that. And so for me, like 
how I'm living now compared to like how I grew up, like I feel very rich. <laughs> and so, you know, that experience growing up kind of taught me like, you just don't like, it doesn't matter like how you look, the clothes that you dress in, like I'll still oftentimes dress up in like, if I were to go to a conference, like I'd probably be wearing like a t-shirt or something. <laughs> and part of that is just like to force me to remember what it's like and to also just be comfortable with like people thinking you're weird or something like that. It, like it's a muscle. It's very much a muscle that I think you have to train. And so, yeah, I mean, if you are able to reduce your personal burn or to not even let it escalate to a point where it gets like a bit crazy, then like you can weather the storms that will be thrown your way when you are trying to grow a business. I love that. Just like you, I'm a big believer in that. And I think it's been, so I moved from India um, mm -hmm. to over here in Dallas and I've been in Dallas about eight plus years now, haven't moved outside of there much. And since that time, one of the most weird things in my apartment is I don't have a TV. Yep. I know it sounds really weird, but one of the things I feel is this, I view social media, it's, it, there's benefits, but one of the predominant views I have about it is also like a, a large scale programming machine that programs yep. you. Mm -hmm. So if I'm always watching something about people in flashy cars and stuff, then you kind of start to think about it. So I'm like, I don't want to get influenced by what other people think is cool. Mm -hmm. I want to focus on, on my own self. And then when you mentioned wearing that t-shirt to remind yourself. So there was a year in Dallas where uh, I was broke and I used to live in this really, like really shady, uh, for mm -hmm. the lack of euphemism, <laughs> uh, apartment for a while. So even now, from time to time, I'll just drive by there, park my car in that apartment, um, parking lot, and then just sit there for a couple of hours to kind of like humble myself. To your point, if I find myself like, okay, we're going overboard. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting. Like I, I deleted like Instagram and I've, I'm a little more active on Twitter just because I see it kind of as a, something I kind of should do for work, which may or may not be true. But Instagram for me, like, uh, that was one of the things that I stopped doing simultaneously while taking like the cold showers. And mm -hmm. I think Instagram in particular is like really, really bad when it comes to kind of, it's very easy to be envious of what other people have or the experiences that they're having when like you just are scrolling through that. And it's like, that's what people are talking about. Right. It's like, Oh, look at where I am. Look at where, you know, I am today. Yeah. And I, I thought about this in the context of like coronavirus, especially, but like with everybody being home, it's created this really interesting dynamic where all of a sudden people like can't show off like where they are, right? Like yeah. they can't take those photos from like the middle of Brooklyn and New York or whatever. And I started to notice this when I have a TV. I try, like, I periodically, like, really try to not watch TV, but I was watching the news and they did a segment on, like, the movie stars and the artists that were doing, like, live streams of themselves in shows in their homes. And I was watching that and I was like, I feel like they're so starved for attention, right? Yeah. Imagine, like, every three days of your life, let's say, you have a show in a new city and all of a sudden you don't. And now you're just playing the piano and singing from your home, which is a nice home. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But it's it's created this very interesting like leveling effect where it's like you can't really show off as much when you're just inside your house bored on the couch. 
I don't know. I, I think about stuff like that quite a bit, but I think Instagram in particular is a really, it's like, if you were to focus on all the good things that you have in your life, even if it's not like a ton, there will always be someone that's doing something or has something that you don't have. And instead of like focusing on that gap between your reality and what you want, like you should realign your thoughts and expectations to focus on like the ground truth reality that like you have it a lot better than most people. <laughs> and to paraphrase a teenager, I might have to edit this out, but I was talking to a teenager and he and he's like, I quit Instagram. And I'm like, why? And he said, bro, it's literally an endless stream of just beautiful women that don't even exist around you mm-hmm. and cars, expensive, mm-hmm. expensive cars. And it just shocked me like this teenager here actually just realized that ground truth. Mm-hmm. And I was like, my God. Yep. You'll live a way better life if you stop focusing on what you don't have and instead focus on what you do have and all the good things, like just focusing on little things. I don't know. It, it, this is a lot more difficult in practice. Like it's easy to talk about it, but it's really something you have to actively force yourself not to do. And for me, the most obvious thing is just not to be on Instagram, like delete the app. Like, just get rid of it. Maybe, like, they visit don't. it once a week, but, like, just get rid of it. So, as a now that you're a venture-funded company, one of the things I was curious about, how does a CEO, like, solve this dilemma of, well, I want to pay myself what is a good market salary, but then if I do that, maybe that's some money I could have invested back in the product or company? Yeah, sure. So, for me, as I mentioned before, like, my wife and I kind of agreed on a rough number. And that may change if like we have another kid and, you know, like she finishes up at her job and all that. But for me, I know like the bottom end and I've just been there. (laughs) I haven't upped my salary at all. And so that was like, I knew like the minimum amount that I needed to pay myself. And so for me, I just haven't budged from there. And quite frankly, like I, I was talking to Allie, my wife about this. I was like, you know, I really hate it when I get like those email alerts, it's like, you've been paid. It's like, cause it's, 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 I don't know. I just, uh, I'm having way too much fun building a company and like, you know, trying to service customers and all that, that like, for me, I'm perfectly fine with what I make. And it's, for me, it's not about the money. It's about a super interesting learning experience, working with people that I really enjoy working with and trying to tackle uh, what I would consider to be a meaningful problem. So the money is like before when I was full-time at other companies, I definitely was optimizing, like I would optimize a lot more for salary. Now it's like way further down on the list. It's just something that's like, okay, I need to set something because I need to be able to live and to live in a way where like we aren't struggling or whatever. Yeah. So that's how, that's how we came to that conclusion was it was kind of a collaborative process with my wife and I, and you know, we may have to adjust it in the future, but for now and for the unforeseeable future, like I'm totally fine with it. Because like when you work for a company, when you run a company, you're kind of working for the upside, whatever that might be. Maybe it doesn't pan out. Maybe it does. For me, the upside is learning and really like trying to build something meaningful in the market. And then, you know, if there's a financial outcome or if there's something else like, oh, great, cool. But yeah, it's it's really way less focused on like optimizing for a paycheck at this period in time. You just nailed it. I was listening to you. I just realized that when we... I don't know how much of this might be true, but I think when you work in jobs or roles that are not satisfying to what we're doing, or we don't feel a sense of accomplishment, we generally tend to optimize on the number, the salary. Mm-hmm. 
And then when you mentioned that you're having so much fun that you don't care, maybe that's something to it where you're having so much fun that you don't feel the need to optimize or over-optimize maybe is the right word on the salary part. Yeah, I mean, there's a kind of this common saying that like, it goes something along the lines of, you know, if someone comes and they threaten to leave and they're just saying, hey, like, pay me more and I'll be happy. It's like that generally doesn't work. Usually there's some other issue. The money is not typically that driving force for like looking for a job elsewhere. Yeah. And so typically, yeah, if you get the other variables in place, the money or the salary isn't as big of a deal. It still is a factor, but it's not obvious where salary falls when you have other things that are prioritized more highly, like, you know, autonomy, mastery, and other things, right? So what is your outlook on investing? And what is a no-brainer investment for you? (laughs) So... I guess I kind of think in terms of two buckets, maybe. So my family, especially on my dad's side, it's all about finding the deal, right? And so (laughs) to use a a simple analogy, it might be like finding a great deal at a yard sale, right? You know that this thing that you want is worth, let's say, $100, but it's on sale for $50 at the yard sale. And you know that maybe you could turn around and sell that for $100 tomorrow if you wanted to. So there's kind of the idea of finding those deals. And so I I think about it like there's that one bucket and then there's kind of the idea of of this thing that can grow exponentially or that has these unique advantages that will pay off in a over the long term for example. Like I guess one example is, you know, Amazon 20 years ago, right? They would constantly reinvest the capital, they would continue to grow the business. They haven't made quote unquote a profit for a long time, or they didn't make a profit for decades. And now they're a massive company. And so like bucket one is finding a deal where the price of the thing is less than the value that the market assigns it. And then the second is like latching onto some like mega trend or some really interesting business that is deploying the capital effectively and has a history of doing that. And so that's how I think about how I invest is in one of those buckets. And I actually, and like time will tell if this is a good idea or not, but most people, they'll like diversify, right? So it's like, okay, I put everything in an ETF or in a basket of goods, right? I can buy a basket of stocks that are in the airlines, or I can buy a basket of tech companies, right? And for a long time, I was like, wow, that's like a great idea. You can kind of uh, distribute the risk across multiple ones. But the reality is, is you actually, what you end up doing is you might pick a few really great ones, but you pick a lot, like a lot of bad companies are lumped in as well. Yep. The upside is less too. Yeah. So you limit your upside. And for most people, that is actually the best way of doing things, right? Because you don't have the time or the knowledge or the desire to learn more about these individual businesses. You'd rather buy the index. Okay. That's fine. And that's probably a good idea for most people. From my perspective, that's not really what excites me. What excites me is kind of finding the deal at the yard sale, (laughs) right? Yeah, so I do not diversify. I try to find stuff that I really like and double down on it in a pretty aggressive way. That could be, you know, from my career perspective, right? Starting a company where I'm making a bet on myself and like these market insights that ideally or hopefully I've found. But it could be diversifying by buying a bunch of one stock or buying Bitcoin. (laughs) So for, for me, 
yeah, I think about those two buckets and I do not generally diversify. I will try to double down. And so, yeah, the proxy I use to find the deals at the yard sale is, and once again, time will tell if this is actually a good idea or not, but seems like what you tr- what you really need to find, and once again, this is all my experience and my theories, like you should be very skeptical maybe about what I have to say. If it works for you, great. If not, then like that's fine too. But this is what, this is the yardstick I use is you don't typically find good deals when the market is excited about something. Yes. Right. And so the proxy I use to find the deals at the yard sale is I just like periodically check like CNBC or I have a few companies on my quote unquote watch list, which isn't very big because I just don't have time. And I'll just see if like anything bad happens. <laughs> and and when I hear about them in the news in a very negative light, that is my cue to investigate further. And so, you know, and sometimes this works out, sometimes it doesn't. But yeah, for me, it's like if something, if everybody's ranting and raving about something in the news, the price is probably a lot higher than the value is, right? Because there's kind of this hype cycle. But the inverse yeah. can apply as well, where people are way too negative on something and they should have been a bit more positive. So I'll give a couple examples. For me specifically, like I, I don't really do a lot of, like I check this like, I don't know, probably a few times a month. But for me, the things that I, like my experience or the things that have worked out for me, I guess I'll say, is six or eight months ago, Tesla was really beat up right? There's kind of this question of, well, are they going to make a profit? Like, do people actually want electric cars? And I think their stock price like dipped under 200, probably eight months ago or so. Maybe it was a little bit longer. And it was like, they were just getting pounded in the media. And the whole time I just, and and once again, I do not recommend that, that this is the only way you pick a stock. But for me, I just kept looking around and I kept seeing more and more Teslas. And this was up here in Portland and, you know, not a bunch of people have, you know, 40 grand to spend on a th- on a Model 3 or whatever. So I kept seeing more Teslas and I followed them pretty closely. I ended up buying, at, I don't know, it was a little over 200. And then the stock popped and I sold early. I always kind of cut my losses early. Like I think I sold at like 330 or something. <laughs> and then I went to like 900, um, which <laughs> oh once God. again, like the, the market went way overboard the opposite way. And now I think it's, I don't know, 400 bucks or something. But I mean, I made pretty good money off that. Like I didn't but you had buy your greed a bunch in of check. <laughs> What? But you had your greed in check, which is extremely hard to do because it's like, well, I should have held on instead of a 330 to 900, but you didn't know it was going to go there. Yeah, yeah. So like, I didn't know that, you know, like the hype cycle, turns out the hype cycle worked the opposite way. And so I typically sell early if I think there's like, like, I'm happy, like, this is good, fine, be out. And so... So yeah, that's how I think about the deals at the yard sale is like, find some companies that you can investigate and dig deeper into where maybe you have an advantage because you work in tech or you work in the industry of the, of the business that you are looking at, right? That gives you an unfair advantage. And then see, like wait and see, uh, and use like negative news as maybe like a proxy for investigating something. So like right now, for example, Oil stocks are getting super beat up. Uh, Bed Bath & Beyond has gotten just destroyed. And those are the places that I'm looking at. <laughs> um, and like, it may not work, but that's how I personally try to find deals at the yard sale. And then when ideally, if the price goes up, 
you know, you have, um, you know, you're able to harvest the gain uh, because you've just bought at a lower price. On the growth side, I realize I'm maybe talking about this way too much. On the growth side, I look for something that like just fundamentally will change like something in a big way. And so I personally am like pretty long Bitcoin, especially Mm -hmm. when like there's so much money printing that happens. And like, I don't know if that'll work out, but for me, like that potential upside is really interesting. And like, if there is a gain, I typically like will. So like, for example, if I put $1 into Bitcoin and it grows to $3, I'll typically try to get that dollar out so that I can think about it in terms of like, I've already extracted the amount of money that I've put in. So now anything else is upside. If it goes to zero, it's not the end of the world. I haven't lost anything. And so, yeah, I look at kind of what the exponential, like I try to find those and place like aggressive bets. And for me, like I'm pretty long Bitcoin. It also has created this very interesting behavior where like a 30% drop, you're kind of just like, whatever. (laughs) So like everybody's freaking out about the stock market dropping for obvious and good reasons. Yes. But like this happens in Bitcoin land all the time. And so it's created this weird behavior where it just doesn't phase me that much to see like a large drop largely because like I'm not throwing all my eggs in one basket, but also because like Bitcoin has kind of conditioned me to like not really think about the large fluctuations. I have a similar strategy for going long and investing in stock market. So it's for me, like I know my tendency um, that I can sometimes be impulsive. So Mm -hmm. I've, I work with a financial advisor this really amazing guy that we worked together for the past five years. And usually I love to hustle. I like people who hustle. So mm-hmm. I guess the reason I kind of ended up working with him was A, number one, if you're a financial advisor, I want you to be independent, like work for your own company. Because if yeah. you're working for somebody else, then why is the guy or girl you're working for not managing my money, right? Mm-hmm. So he had his own company. But what really hit me was he had this email framed on his wall where he had emailed Jack Bogle, the founder of Vanguard before he passed away. And Jack Bogle replied to him. And I'm like, that's what I like. Cause I also send cold emails to people. Mm -hmm. And when I would go around, I would ask them questions like, what are the top three books you would recommend in the world of finance? And then if I would get, you know, really weird answers or no answers, that's like a red flag to me. Cause I'm like, I want you to be so passionate about this field that you get a hard on, like, you know, before just being blunt about it. I want you to be really into this field. And our investment thesis is just like China and AI. And I think I had read this book, China's Disruptors in 2015 when I was at the airport. I saw the book and I read it. And you know, I found out about companies for the first time like Tencent. And mm-hmm. I think I knew about Libra by that time, but then also Baidu. Yep. So essentially, we just keep going long and long on those positions. And the way we've set up our stuff is we use Fidelity. So I can only view my stock portfolio, I can't sell or buy. I have mm-hmm. to go through my guy. I have mm-hmm. to go through him. So this way, it's like a two-step process. So I don't ever do something panicky like, oh my God, I watched the news and I just sold the whole thing. Mm-hmm. And things can happen like that. So that's the way um, I go about doing my stuff as mm-hmm. like investing goes. And then I think similar to you, I believe you are also a big uh, investor in books. Mm-hmm. And I think reading your article, I do the same thing. Like if I'm... Um, at an airport and I see a book, I think it's something my dad taught me is just like, don't try to save that $10, trying to find a free PDF or, you know, try to borrow it from somebody. Just buy the goddamn book. Yep. 
Yeah, it's really interesting. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes my wife gets mad at me because it's like an Amazon package. I mean, it hasn't happened in the last month or so, <laughs> but like there are some weeks where like three or four packages will show up on my doorstep and they're all books. And sometimes I honestly won't read the whole thing, but if I can figure like if I can figure out one or two like really interesting learnings from that book, it's paid for itself. There's just something about call it a 200 page book that is someone's life experience that is compressed and is available for you to learn and to absorb and to use in your life. And maybe the entire thing is worth reading and maybe only part of it is, but like for $10, that seems like it's an obviously good deal. Now, the one thing I do think about is like reading better books more slowly. And so like there's a bunch of new books that come out all the time, right? Like every year there's more and more books. I like to try to find like those classics because like if something was true, call it a hundred years ago, and you can pick up that book and read and things still resonate today, there's a principle or there's a nugget there that you should probably pay attention to. So for example, I'll give one a quick example. I read in a book and this was, this was on the concept of distributed teams but back in the 1600s, uh, the Hudson Bay Company, they settled in, oh gosh, somewhere in Canada, north of Maine. <laughs> I should know this, maybe like Quebec territory. They were essentially a distributed group of people. They had different outposts. Uh, the central office was in London, I believe, and they were a distributed team. And so what they would do is they would, you know, from as the executive team in London, they would, you know, do annual letters and like quarterly letters. That was that kind of top-down communication. But they also required that people at the outposts to write a report of how things were going and, you know, additional information that would help them make better decisions. So when I read that and I thought about it in the context of what I'm building, it's like that is a timeless principle that will probably be true 30, 40, 50 years from now. Oh, um, yeah. And so if you can find the similarities that have existed for a long period of time, that indicates it's kind of a relatively unmovable human behavior. And like, if you can latch onto that, like you might be able to build something interesting or I don't know if that's useful, but that, I love reading old books because it helps you better separate the signal from the noise. If something was true hundred years ago and it resonates with you today, like really think about that principle because the new books today it's hard to separate if it's a trend from a like principle that will be consistent 20 years from now. You couldn't have said it better. Something could be said about how a book ages. Yes. I, I, have you ever read, it's one of Nassim Taleb's books. Uh, I, th I can't remember the name of it, but he talks about this idea of the Lindy effect. And the Lindy effect is this thing he coined and it was named after this restaurant in New York city. And I can't remember the name of the restaurant. Maybe it was Lindy or something. <laughs> Lindy's Diner. I can't remember. Um, but the idea was, it was like this kind of rundown place, but it had been around for 60, 70 years. And he came up with this principle that's like, hey, if something has been around for 60 to 70 years, it will probably be around for another 60 to 70 years. You can use the same principle with books. Like if something has been around for 500 years, it will probably be around for another 500 years, right? It's kind of like, I think it's like, if you think about like nuclear decay or something, like you lose cells or you lose atoms over time. And like, you can estimate like the half-life of certain things based on, I don't know if it's radiation or something else, but like that is a kind of principle that happens in, in our daily 
environment, you can apply that principle in many different ways. So I know I just totally screwed up the science project, but, <laughs> but like there's a principle there. And I, I think there's something to take away, I guess. Absolutely. I think one of the books that I uh, recall is How to Make Friends and Influence People. Yep. Even though it was written a while back, I still find so many nuggets of wisdom when I read the book still applicable today. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, that's a great example of a book that will probably still as prevalent as it is today, you know, 60 years from now. Any last words of wisdom, Luke, for people looking to start out on their own, follow the dream or start their own company? Yeah, I think, I mean, there's a lot of different directions I could take, but I think the the advice I have for someone, if you're thinking about starting a business is you have to really be passionate and excited about the problem that you're trying to solve. And for me, the way you get to that point is maybe it sh- like you should scratch your own itch, right? Like you should try to find a problem that you experience on an everyday basis and try to solve that. Because if you can solve it for yourself, A, you can feel pretty good about that. But B, there's probably other people that feel the same pain. That's part one. Part two is try to de-risk the business as much as you can. You don't need to go out and spend a ton of money to hire engineers or investing you know, six to eight months in building a thing. You can cobble together different tools and different things to try to validate the behavior first. But that being said, like there is a high bar if you're trying to build a really interesting product where like you really want to find super smart people and work with them. Like that has been such a huge impact on me working on Fridays, just working with people that I enjoy working with. Like it's had a huge impact on me. So like it, solo entrepreneurship is super cool and, and kind of awesome if you can pull it off. But at some point you'll just, as you mentioned earlier on the podcast with the idea of remote work, it's like at some point you just kind of want to like hang out with people. Like the social interaction is kind of a big deal. And so for me, like, don't overestimate the value of having like a team of people that you can work with. Sure. Like there may be interpersonal relationships or like things you need to figure out, but like, I think that's worth it. I think that's worth the effort. And then I'm just trying to think of anything else. Yeah. Scratch your own itch. Try to de-risk the business as much as you can, at least in the early days, work with people that try to find people that, that you could work with for a long period of time. And then just don't overcomplicate things. At the end of the day, a business is a transaction, right? You have something of value that you can provide to someone who has a need. And that exchange, ideally, there's some value that is traded. And that is just the basic mechanics of a business. And so like, don't overcomplicate it. And then, yeah, I mean, I guess the only other thing I'll mention is like your customer is a, can be a rich source of insight for where you need to take the business. So like get on the phone with them, talk with them, ask them questions on a regular basis. Like if you are super close to the customer, they're not going to tell you exactly what you need to build, but you can pull the pieces together from, you know, four or five different customers and you can start identifying trends, but you will not figure that out if you sit behind a screen, like you have to like get on a real time call. You need that rich feedback loop. And you just need to ask kind of open-ended questions and they will probably lead you down a path in which you can make, you know, you can improve your business or can build something interesting. So I don't know. That's my advice, I guess. Thank you so much, Luke, for the words of wisdom and coming on the show. Yeah, uh, sure. Phenomenal time learning from you. Yeah, yeah. Well, this was, a, this was a fun time for sure. If you made it this far, you are what I call a design MBA super fan. 
And I've got a gift for you, my super fan. Head over to designmba.show where you will find my email address. Email me one thing you learned from this podcast episode and I will get on a 30-minute call with you and help you in your career goals. See you in the next episode.